Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. Welcome to another episode of Rethink Culture, the podcast that shines the spotlight on business leaders who are creating intentional cultures, who see their employees not as resources to be managed and directed, but as people that need to be led and inspired. My name is Andreas Constantino, and I'm your host. And I'm, I see myself as an accidental micromanager who turned servant leader and over the years developed a personal passion for culture. And I'm also the founder of Rethink Culture, which is a company that aims to help create one million healthier, more fulfilling work cultures. Today, I have the rare pleasure of welcoming Brian Brolt. Brian is founder of Legacy of Significance, and he just sold his business, uh, Pure Wellness Rooms. Previously, he led Advanced Facility Services, which was named one of the best places to work for in West New York. And he also recently served as chairman of the global board in the Entrepreneurs Organization that I'm also a member of. And he also leads, leads the Entrepreneur Masters Program, which is where I met him. And what I love about Brian is that he always looks for the good in people and recognizes the humanity in people. And I'm sure you have lots more to talk to us about that. Welcome to the Rethink Culture podcast, Brian. Oh, Andreas, I'm really excited to be here. I, I think you and I both approach life and approach leadership and and leading organizations the same way. And so I'm, I'm really excited just to kind of share stories and and go on this journey with you. So thanks for having me. Let's do that. So let's let's first hear about the legacy of significance, which is your your passion and your current business. As I understand. Uh, yeah. So gosh, probably five, maybe maybe almost six years ago, I started, uh, I was at a point in my life where uh, I had stepped away from day-to-day -day leadership of the companies that I had. And and I wanted to put my efforts towards uh, really more of a purpose-driven project. And uh, as I look at my journey through my professional career and life, um, I was at a point where I wanted to focus on helping to lead people on a journey of self-discovery. Uh, I, I, I am a forum trainer in the entrepreneurial world, which is a, those are peer-to-peer -peer networking, small groups that we, we go on a journey together and, and help navigate our lives and, and get clarity around our next steps, whether it's professionally and family or personal journeys. Um, and so I, I train people on that, but I'm also, I'm very involved in leadership development. I'm one of the formators of the Leadership Academy program in the Entrepreneurs Organization as well. And I, I love that part of my life. And so I thought if I could spend the remaining years of my professional life helping people to live their best life, inspire happiness uh, through things like leadership development, retreats, whether it's couples retreats or corporate retreats or forum retreats or executive education or helping to develop new or middle-level managers and companies to be really effective in their role. That, that's just what I love. That's what gives me energy. And so if I could spend the rest of my professional life doing those kinds of things, that would be great. And so that's that's really what inspired Legacy of Significance is is really the ability to live our best life. And so it's what's really interesting is I didn't really want to create a whole new company that required employees and a team and 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 really me to be a CEO of anything. I just wanted to be able to uh, show up, 
and have a positive impact in the lives of others. And yet, inevitably, I think as we entrepreneurs do, it has really started to develop into uh, quite an organization. So it's uh, that's kind of where I'm at today. So in your journey, Brian, was there an inflection point or a point where you becoming where you became more conscious as a leader, uh, conscious about how you led your team, and conscious about the culture you built? Uh, yes, there were there were two points. I think one was a a difficult position for me. I had built the first company I had, Advanced Facility Services, was. I, I would guess it was probably somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred employees. And uh, I had gotten to, I walked into work one day and I, it, it had grown into a decent sized company, but I, I walked into work one day and I looked at everything that was on my calendar for the day and I didn't want to do any of it. It was important meetings. It wasn't that they weren't important things, but it was, you know, sitting with our head of HR and approving a new compensation structure. It was meeting with our controller and our chief operating officer about uh, budgets. And I was meeting with uh, one of our operations managers who was struggling with one of his people. And I just looked at it and I thought, you know, what what have I built and why why is this requiring all the things of me that I don't enjoy as much? And I started to think, well, maybe I maybe I've built this company and I can sell it now. But I loved what I I loved building the business, and so what I what I did, Andreas, is I I realized that I have this belief, and that is I think everyone has at least a little bit of entrepreneurial spirit in them, and yet most people either don't have the courage or they don't have the nurturing environment to to give them the ability to step out, or they've gotten themselves in a life situation where it's difficult to take on that risk of actually starting their own entrepreneurial venture. Um, and so what, what we did is we took this company that we had built and uh, w- that was about a hundred people. And we looked at it and said, let's take the six areas of our business and divide them into kind of like their own individual businesses. And so we took, there was, there was really five lines of business, but then we also had a division geographically that was 1600 miles away. And so what we ended up doing is we created that as a separate region and we treated it as one entity. And then the other five types of services that we provided, we broke them up and we had general managers of each of those areas of responsibility. And we we structured them. So we used the great game of business by sharing our numbers um, and, and allowing them to uh, see and control the numbers that they had influence over. Uh, we also, we so we set them up, they were responsible for their pro- financial performance, their, uh, their sales and marketing. Uh, we gave them support, overall company support in the areas of human resources, accounting, administrative support. And then there was an overarching leadership team that oversaw the entire organization. But below that, each, each general manager was able to run that business and make decisions within our core values that gave them autonomy. And so what happened is we went from about 100 employees to 300 employees in about three years. Um, and, And really what my role then became was working shoulder to shoulder with these general managers as partners in building businesses. 
And it really allowed me to, uh, it allowed me to start to love what I was doing again and really help build an exciting organization. And it was in that time frame that we became one of the best companies to work for in our, our area of New York. And it was, uh, it was an exciting time because what we did is we led with collabor- collaboration. So rather than me as a leader having positional authority, which when you own a company, you have positional authority. Now, when you exercise positional authority, I, I think you actually start to lose credibility because positional authority is you as the leader, you as the owner, you have the authority. And so you typically, when you're when you're exercising your positional authority, you lead with directives. You tell people what to do. When you can shift to relational authority, you start to lead with influence and you start to lead with collaboration. And it changes the culture of an organization. Um, I think any organization has a bottleneck, whether it's your business or a non-for-profit or something, some religious organization, whatever it is, any, any organization has a bottleneck. And the width of that bottleneck is usually determined by the number of people in that organization who can make decisions of substance. So uh, when, you're, when you lead with positional authority and directives, that bottleneck is usually quite narrow. When you can start to shift to leading with relational authority and lead with influence and collaboration, and you can see leadership abilities in others and start to nurture and mentor them and empower them to start making decisions and feel comfortable and confident in doing so, you start to create more leaders in your organization. And when you create more leaders, that bottleneck widens, and that's how an organization can scale. And so that's kind of what happened in that time frame for us is we started to develop and nurture leaders over each of those areas and then encourage them to do the same in their areas of responsibility, their mini companies, so to speak. And what happened is we just started to scale as a company. And it was really an exciting time because we created this culture of collaboration. Um, I believe there's three things any leader needs to make sure the people they're leading can answer. That is, where are we going? What do we need to do to get there? And what is my role? Where are we going is that clearly articulated vision. I mean, very, very clearly, almost like a picture. You can see three to five years from now where we're going to be. That is a leadership decision. That is a leadership vision. And then from there, what do we need to do to get there? That's the strategic plan. And my own approach is I think you need to bring in a much broader audience the people who are actually going to roll up their sleeves and get that work done, bring them into the discussion about developing the strategy to achieve that vision. And then from there is, what is my role? And that is everyone from the CEO of the company to the frontline person who was just hired yesterday understands each and every day what their role is in executing on that strategy to reach that vision. And once you've got that, then I believe the leader of the organization needs to circle to the bottom and serve. And what I mean by serving is that you provide the resources needed for them to be successful. Sometimes that's finances or budget. Sometimes that's clarity, clarity of vision. Sometimes that's a culture of accountability. Well, it's always a culture of accountability. But and, And within that culture of accountability, sometimes it's a pat on the back or a high five. Um, or recognition and appreciation. Sometimes it's 
It's that proverbial kick in the pants, not literally, but it's just holding them accountable and holding a mirror up to them and saying, hey, you said you were going to do this and you didn't. What, what's going on? We just need to have a conversation about this. Sometimes, Andreas, it's, hey, listen, if if someone has an errand that needs to be run or you need to go pick up lunch for people so that they can meet a deadline because they're, their back's up against the wall, as the leader, yeah. You get in your car and you go grab lunch for them or you go pick up their dry cleaning. That it, What you do is you, you make their life easier so that they can achieve success in their role. And when they achieve a success in their role, the company is more likely to achieve success. So that's really what I mean by serving is, is just being a resource that helps them be successful. Um, and, and that's kind of that's kind of my belief. And in in that point in our business, I, I don't know that it was a conscious effort, Andreas, but what it was is more my natural style of leadership, allowing that to come together and, and just build really high performing teams. Was there something you learned in your path of leadership in EO? I mean, you went all the way up to global chair. Um Was there something you learned in that journey which changed the way you led your company? Uh, I would say in my path of leadership in EO is where I really learned how to lead leaders. And kind of going back to the bottleneck in the company, um, when you have positional authority in your company, you can always lead that way if you choose to. When you are leading other strong leaders in the entrepreneur's organization, you're leading other people who have successful businesses. They're strong leaders in their own right. And we're all volunteering in those roles. And so you, you won't be successful sustainably in EO if you are leading with positional authority, because quite frankly, a title in EO is just that. It's a title. You don't have positional yeah. authority in EO. You need to be successful sustainably. You need to shift into leading with relational authority and, and leading with influence and leading with collaboration. And it needs to be genuine collaboration. Um, and that is uh, recognizing that um, the, the wisdom is in the room. You have incredible experience you're surrounded with and, and, and learning how to, uh, to pull people's perspective and input into how to be successful as, as an entity within the entrepreneur's organization is, is essential. And if you can learn how to shift to relational authority, that, that can transfer back to your company. So how you lead in your company may not transfer well into EO, but if you can be successful in leading in the entrepreneur's organization, leading other strong leaders, you can bring that back and start to nurture and develop and mentor leaders in your own organization That's, to me, how you scale an organization. Um, but to be honest, Andreas, I, I never really, my style of leadership was always just to be very authentic. And mm. I never had the confidence in myself as a leader. I was asked to play a number of leadership roles on my path of leadership in EO over a period of 10 years. And uh, I never really understood why I kept getting asked to be a, a leader, to step up into a higher level of leadership. And, and there's two things I think that happened. One is, and, and I say this today, when people ask me, hey, how do I evolve in leadership in EO? 
my, my answer is always the same, and it would be the same in a business. And that is just be 100% focused on being the best you can in the role you're in right now. Just, you know, just assume you're, you're this, after this role, you're done. And so be the best you can be. And, and in Yale, for certain, when you're in leadership in the entrepreneur's organization, you're taking time away from your business, away from your family, your own personal life to invest in leading, volunteering to lead in a role. Well, your family, your business, and you deserve for you to be the best you can in that role. But the people you're serving, the members of your chapter or your region or the global organization deserve you to be the best in that role as you can be. And so just focus on being in that role. If you're thinking about what do I need to do to get to these positions up here, you're focusing on the future. You're not focusing on being the best you can be in that role right now. And, And everyone deserves you to be the best you can. And if all you're focused on is being the best in that role this year, right now, what inevitably happens, Andreas, is someone's going to tap you on the shoulder and say, hey, you've done a great job in that role. Would you consider leading here? And and if if your interest is just genuinely in serving and, and helping advance the organization, you're probably going to get asked to step up into leadership whether you want to or not. Most of the time that I was asked to take on new roles in leadership, my initial reaction was no, I'm, I'm done. I, I just want to go back to being a member and running my business and being being a father and a grandfather. Yeah. Uh, and and so I, I generally would say no most of the time that I was asked and would need to be talked into it. Um, but part of that was, is I just never thought I was a very good leader. I just, I didn't. And and all of a sudden, I found myself in a point where I was going to be the, the chair of the global board of directors of EO. And, and so I asked, I asked two people to mentor me. Uh, one was a guy named Jeff Hoffman, one of the founders of Priceline.com. And I wanted Jeff to mentor me because I wanted, he and I were very aligned on the value of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurship in making an impact in the world. So I wanted to partner with him, which eventually evolved into the relationship we created with the United Nations and and bringing entrepreneurs from around the world to kind of take our unique way of, of, of being tenacious and not taking no for an answer and being innovative and creative and taking our hearts and applying it to the way the world solves problems. In addition, I asked Warren Rustan uh, to uh, mentor me. I knew that being in this role of, of of chair of the board would have an impact on me, and I wanted to make sure that was a positive impact. Um, and so I wanted to make sure that I had balance in my life and that the priorities in my life were intact. And so I asked Warren to to mentor me. And and one of the first in the very first meeting, I said to him, Warren, I'm I'm really nervous because I just don't think I'm a very good leader and. I don't understand how I've gotten to where I'm at. And he said, Brian, he said, read a book called Discover Your True North by a former uh, CEO of a company called Medtronics by the name of Bill George. And he said, just read that, read that book and then let's talk. So I read it. And in the very first chapter, in essence, what it says is the era of Jack Welch, where the smartest person in the room evolves into leadership, has gone. What's, what's taken its place is those with higher emotional intelligence, 
those who genuinely care about the people they're leading and those who are good at building teams, those are the people today that are evolving into leadership. Andreas, I was 52 years old when I read that book, and it was the first time in my life where I thought, wow, okay, if, if this is what people see in me, this feels more like me. Because I do, I do feel like I have more emotional intelligence than intelligence quotient. I've never been the smartest person in the room, even when I'm alone. But I do genuinely care about people. I do look for the good in people and good in situations. And I do love building teams. And I do feel like that's something that I am good at is, is really building teams. Because uh, as you, you and I both know, the, the essential part of building teams is to establish trust. And that's not trust that you can leave some money on your desk one day and it'll be there the next day. That's kind of table stakes. What I mean is, that people feel like we are all aligned and our intentions are to do good in the world and good as an organization. We are aligned together on where we're going and what we need to do to get there and what our roles are. And we trust that we are all trying to help each other towards that end goal and that we care about each other. And that is very natural to me. So uh, yeah, at 52 years old was the first time I thought, well, gosh, if this is what people see in me, maybe maybe I'm a better leader than I thought. Um, and that's kind of where what's brought me to where I am today. Um, earlier, before we start recording, we talked about accountability and vulnerability as key components of, of leading teams. Um, how what, what do they mean to you? Uh, how do you great use them? question. I think there's two parts. For me, vulnerability as a leader... I mean, there's a, a number of ways we can look at vulnerability. But to me, primarily, the vulnerability as a leader comes down to recognizing we don't, we don't all, we don't have to have the answers as the leader. So often as the leader of an organization, whether that's a team or a company or a EO chapter, we feel like, hey, as the leader, I'm supposed to have all the answers. And, uh, you know, it's interesting. My my company, Pure Wellness Rooms, in 2010, uh, was identified by Hyatt Hotels as a brand standard in, in the Americas. So Canada, the U.S., Latin America, Caribbean, uh, every Hyatt hotel had our program. It was required to have our program. Well, in 2013, there was a change in the highest level of leadership in, in Hyatt, and there was a shift. They basically took our program and and rather than being a brand standard, which means it's a requirement, it became a brand recommendation, which means we love your program, but it's no longer required. And so hotels could discontinue it if they wanted to. And we knew that we probably were going to lose about 30% of, of that business. And we were, we were nervous. We were kind of scared. And so when that came out, we, we called a company-wide meeting. So people were flying in from around the country, and uh, we had a meeting. And I remember praying for the right words to say. And it came the time of the meeting. We're all sitting in, in my office. And I was looking down, still not feeling like I had the words to say. And I, I was looking down. Everyone was sitting there. And it felt like 10 minutes. It was probably five seconds. But I looked up and I looked at everyone. And I said, hey, we all know why we're here. And we've got a difficult journey in front of us. And I wish I had the answers, 
but I don't. And I look around and everyone's eyes got really big. And I said, but what I do know is the answers are in this room. It's in all of us. We just need to have the conversation. And their eyes got really big. And then about 10 seconds later, someone said, well, what if we did this? And so that was the beginning of a two-hour meeting. Uh, And at the end of two hours, we had a plan. It wasn't a perfect plan, but we had a plan. And I still remember feeling inadequate as a leader. And everyone got up to leave. And this one woman from Houston hung back. And she came up to me and said, thank you. And I said, for what? She said, I've never seen you be as strong of a leader as you were today. And I'm getting emotional even thinking about it. And I said, really, why is that? Because I didn't feel it. She said, because you allowed us to step up and be a part of the solution. And I feel like I've, I've got, I feel like I've got commitment to this path forward. And it's because you allowed us to be a part of it. And that was really, it was, it was an opportunity for me to step back and say, it was okay to not have the answers because I would have come up with a plan, but it wouldn't have been as good as what we came up with. I'm sure of that. And then they would have just been doing what my idea was. And if it didn't work, they could point back to me, but it's less about that. It's more about by being vulnerable and saying, I don't have the answers. um, It really allowed us to, 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 to bond as a team. And we became really strong and really tight. Um, and we were a pretty decent team before that. Because the, 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 when, when the brand standard came about in 2010, what we were asked to do by Hyatt was a Herculean effort. I mean, we had to basically take what we had done to that point and almost by a factor of 10, implement uh, a really uh, impactful program you know, we had to launch what we did in 130 hotels over a six-month period. Um, and, you know, that that almost doubled the size of our company. Uh, and we had six months to implement it. And it wasn't just a matter of installing our rooms in these hotels. It was training. It was corporate training. It was training. It was marketing. It was going on press tours. It was just, it was a whole, just we came together and gelled as a team because we did it, at, we, we planned it as a team. And it was uh, really, really powerful. Anyways, that was a a real learning moment for me as vulnerability. In terms of accountability, go ahead, sorry. Yeah, yeah. I was going to ask about accountability. Yeah. So accountability, uh, there's, again, so recognizing the shift from positional authority where you tell people what to do to relational authority where you have influence and and collaboration, part of influence and collaboration is creating agreements. And there's a difference between leading by agreements and leading by dictating. When you create agreements, uh, it's you and I, Andreas, you and I have an agreement. uh, We have a conversation. We have a vision of where we're supposed to go. And we have an agreement between the two of us of what it's going to take to get there. And you play part of that. I play part of that. And so you as an individual are going to put more pressure on yourself to live up to an agreement than to meet an expectation I've placed on you. And so it's, so it's different. So when uh, going back to the where are we going, what do we need to do to get there, and what's my role, in any strategic planning session that I'm ever involved in, 
once we understand where we're going, then we start to break down and say, okay, if that's where we're going to be in three to five years, what do we need to do in the next year, 12 months from now, to be on track to achieve that vision? And what is it going to take to do that? And then we look at all the different components of where we need to be and what it's going to take, and we assign accountability to it. So the people in the room will raise their hand, and we assign one person accountable to execute on carrying that forward. Then we say, okay, great. If that's where we're going to be in a year, where do we need to be in the next 90 days to be on track to achieve that yearly target? Once we do that, we then break that down further and and assign accountabilities to that. But then what I do is I ask each person who's accountable, I say, let's take a week or two and come back as a leadership team and say, okay, if I'm going to be here in 90 days, here's the incremental steps between today and 90 days that I need to execute on. So go back to your team and create, create those mini steps. So weekly commitments that you're as a team going to need to execute on. It's kind of like your playbook to achieve that 90-day target. And then what we do is we build that into a system and the individual that's accountable says, here's what I'm going to do in each of these incremental steps. I'm committing to do these things by these days. It's the person accountable is committing to get those things done. So every week we come into our accountability meetings and there's someone who is managing that process. And I strongly suggest it's not that visionary entrepreneur because we just, we, we lead differently. And this is, a, this is a culture of accountability. So I usually select someone who's really just good at managing projects. And what they do is they manage the process of holding accountable each week, which is simply this. Andreas, you said you would have this done by today. Did you get that done? Yes or no? If the answer is yes, I might ask, is there anything that you think we as a team need to know? If the answer is, and, and typically people don't have that, but if the answer is no, there's, there's four questions we ask. So is it done, yes or no? And if the answer is no, what happened? Why, why didn't it get done? Just so that we as a team are all involved in that. And also it's a, there's a level of accountability with that. And then... After that is, when, what is a date you can recommit to make sure that gets done? And then, uh, is there any collateral damage? So I guess there's five things uh, once you get by the initial question, if that's one of them. Is there, any, is there any collateral damage or other impact that you not achieving that or accomplishing that has? In other words, are there things that you've committed to that are going to have to be delayed? Or are there things that other people have committed to that they're counting on you to do what you say that is going to be impacted? So just that we're, we're, we're looking at all of it. And then the last question is what, is, what can we as a leadership team do to help you be successful in this? You're owning it. You're explaining why it didn't get done. You're recommitting to a new date. You're talking about the, the collateral impact of, of not having that done, what it may have, just so we're aware of it. And then we're also saying is, hey, this is your accountability, but we succeed together as a team and we fail together as a team. And so what can we do to help you be successful in this? And it works. And here's the other thing, Andreas, is that when you are part of that team, you don't feel like you're being judged because you're the one who said, I will do this by this time. 
You're the one who's coming to the meeting and saying, I didn't do it. But you know what the questions are going to be because they're the same for everyone every single time. What happened? When can you recommit? What is the collateral damage? And what can we do to help you be successful? It's the same every time. It's a brilliant recipe. Yeah, it works. I, <laughs> I really understood the... the uh, the power of accountability through EO, through leading committees in EO, I really hadn't had any exposure to that principle. And I, if I look back at my career, I was 100% in what you call positional leadership. So when I was teaching entrepreneurship, I don't know, when 15 years ago, I thought that the lecturer, which I were then, I was then, had to know the answers. So I insisted that, you know, um, that was, that, um, there was a, a question by the class, you know, what is the biggest assets, asset size of a private equity firm or a or VC or something? And I said the number like three billion, when of course was wrong, there were much bigger ones. And people Googled it during the class and proved me wrong, but I still I felt I had to like know everything was so yeah. wrong now and I, I understand that and then through EO I learned that there's so much more power if we hold the team accountable and here is the detail not to the chair not to the the committee leader but to each other and what I found when I was leading as president was the strength of the commitment and the accountability to the peers is much stronger than the commitment to the leader. Right. Because on top of that commitment to a single person, you have multiple per people, and then you're worried about losing face if you're not delivering because everyone else is, and you know you want to be sh showing up as, as being there and doing what you promised to, for, for everyone else. Mm -hmm. So this creates this invisible peer pressure that ends up delivering results without, or with very little work from the leader. So it's, it's really a power tool, accountability in my mind. Oh, I, I agree. And, and it's, uh, I, I love to hear you talk about that. There's so much wisdom in, in what you're saying. I think, uh, yeah, we are more accountable. We feel more pressure to be accountable to our peers necessarily than a leader. Um, and, and that's really what building great teams is about, establishing that trust that, hey, listen, we're all in this together and we're all trying to do well. I don't think anyone wakes up thinking, you know, I want, I want to fail or I want to let people down. I think life happens sometimes. And as a result, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's about leading with compassion and recognizing the humanity in, in the people that we lead, that no one's trying to fail. But sometimes life gets in the way. There's family yeah. situations. There's, you know, I, yeah. I, I have a shirt that uh, on the front it says, be kind. And on the back it says, everyone you meet is fighting some battle that you know nothing about. And I find that time and time again, most of the time, people are, are fighting something that they're just dealing with below the surface. They're dealing with it in their personal life or their family life or there's some struggle that they're going through that is keeping them from showing up the best version of themselves. And, uh, and so when, when you sit down and have a conversation with someone, you know, as, as leaders of any team, 
that team has a purpose and it has commitments to achieve certain things. And leading with compassion doesn't mean we don't meet our goals. In fact, leading with compassion probably makes it so you're more likely to achieve your goals because what you just described about being having that commitment to your peers is when you are part of a team and you view that this is the team's commitment, not an individual's commitment, but the team's commitment, you're more likely to be, you know, feel that internal pressure to say, hey, listen, I need to, I need to step up and and rise to the occasion and, and deliver even when it's tough. But as the leader to sit down and say, hey, Andreas, uh, I need to talk to you about this particular issue because you know you, you've made a commitment and it looks like we're behind and we need to make sure that we achieve success here. But before we get into that at all, are are you okay? Is there anything going on in your life that you know? And share with me to the degree that you're comfortable sharing. But you know, I know this isn't like you to not be achieving this, and so. Um, I'm assuming something's going on, and I just, I want you to know I care about you, and and I whatever I can do to help you, um, I want to do that. So let's start with that, and then once we're through that, let's talk about what we need to do over here to make sure that we're delivering on this. And and if you need someone to step in on your behalf and take the lead on this because of something you're dealing with, we'll do we'll figure that out. Um, but it's it's interesting because leading with compassion actually requires you to hold people accountable. Um, and again, it's it's holding them accountable to what they've agreed to or committed to. Right. But it's also having those difficult conversations. Let's face it, sometimes they're uncomfortable, but we need to have the courage to actually show kindness, show love. And it's because, think about it yourself. If you were not performing and you were potentially letting people down. You would you would want someone to step in and say, "Hey, Andreas, what 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 can I do to help you? What's going on?" You would you would want someone to be direct and honest with you, and yet um, so often people confuse leading with compassion and having that servant leader mindset to um, not having the difficult conversations, and it's exactly the opposite. Having those difficult conversations is an act of love and an act of kindness. You cannot connect with your team, with your the individuals in your team, without being vulnerable about each other's situation. At least, you know the stuff you can share. Yeah, you feel comfortable sharing. If like you would remember, allow me for a second, um, I'd love to just kind of turn the tables. You're asking me, and I know this is your podcast, <laughs> but you have such an incredible way that you approach humanity, teams, people, culture. You know, what is it? What is it for you that really kind of triggered that? What was the catalyst in your life that brought you to really? Because it's who you are. It's not. I don't think it's something that you sit and you're calculated about. I think it's just, you know, it's who you are has come out and 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 really turned into this incredible leader. What what was the catalyst for you, do you think? Thank you for asking. So um, there's two sides to me when it comes to culture. Um, one side I've had since very young, which is the, the, the side of an engineer, breaking things down, analyzing. What does culture mean? What does healthy conflict mean? What does... Uh, emotional security or psychological safety mean? And how do we turn this into 
um, something we can measure. This is like the engineering side of me in my current business. Then there is the um, emotional intelligence or the empathy side of me. And that really developed only after, right after my divorce. Mm-hmm. And before my divorce, I was not in touch with my own feelings. I was not in touch with my spouse's feelings. I was not in touch with the feelings of the people in my team. I was very superficial. And then I, I took, uh, I went to a psychologist, a gestalt psychologist, and you know he helped me get more in touch with my feelings. And through that, you know, this whole world opened up. Um, and I saw that I can communicate and, and be vulnerable. And I started reading about um, Brené Brown, uh, which has an amazing um, recorded talk on Audible, three-hour talk on her power of vulnerability, which touched me and I think explains brilliantly why vulnerability is power. And then through EO, I learned, you know, through our 5% updates, I learned that it's okay to be vulnerable. And I was fine being transparent, but not connecting with my emotions. So once I put that together, then, you know, I came to where I'm now, which is approaching culture and, and teams and people through two sides. One is the engineering side, you know, the commitment, the analysis, the, 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 the breakdowns, the structure and so on. And the other is the, um, kindness and, and, and um, the, the love for the human condition, as Warren calls it, and Warren Rustin calls it, the human condition, which is the messiness, if you like, that we people exhibit. We are perfect in our imperfections. We have, you know, 180 cognitive biases and we're not supposed to work, but we do work because that's how we've evolved. And this messiness is what makes us special. Mm-hmm. Like one of the projects I want to uh, kickstart at some point uh, is I'm, I'm gathering um, all sorts of untranslatable words. Like there's a Brazilian word in uh, uh, that is something like cafune, which means to um, slide your finger through someone's hair as a sign of caress, you know, to your spouse, let's say. And that is so touching. That is a, a brilliant word that describes the human condition. Or there is the kintsugiya uh, thing, which is in Japanese to, to lace a broken ceramic with gold and make it right. even perfect more and more perfect. Right. And all these words to, you know, are signs of the, um, um, the, the, the little things that make us imperfect, but perfectly human, mm. if you like, encapsulate this messiness and, and the wonderful nature that, that we are. So a long answer to a short question. Yeah, but uh, it's beautiful. When I was in high school, uh, a friend of mine's uh, father uh, committed suicide. And I went to the funeral. And it was one of my best friend's father was the pastor of the church. And I remember thinking that, um, how do you navigate? How do you give a sermon on that? And it was what he talked about, and it just it brought you brought me back to it when you talked about the Japanese art of of using gold uh, to repair ceramics, and it becomes even more beautiful. And he talked about he talked about the story of of master weavers in making uh, Oriental carpets or Asian carpets. And he said they start out with a plan, and there's a design, and it is. The that that vision of the design is given to 
the weavers, and they start weaving. And inevitably, someone's going to make a mistake, and they're going to put in the wrong thread or at the wrong place or whatever it is. And what they don't do is they don't pull that out. What they do is the master weaver comes over and he looks at the mistake and redesigns the carpet based on that mistake. And so it's never what you start out believing it's going to be. It never turns out that way because mistakes happen. And he said, what happens is the carpet inevitably ends up even more beautiful than it was originally intended because they take the mistakes that are made and just redesign life going forward. And so often we feel like the mistakes we made, you can't reverse from. But to your point about uh, taking the gold and, and putting the ceramic piece back together and having it be even more beautiful, it's the same. Uh, you know, there's, there's things that I've had gone through in my life, am going through in my life, that are just really, really challenging. But it, it's helped me grow as an individual. I've become less judgmental. I've, uh, I've really recognized that that whole concept of everyone you meet is is fighting some battle you have no idea about. And and yet it's, I, I believe it's what's helped me be a more compassionate person and and really recognize that every human being is is doing the best they can given the circumstances they're in and finding the good in people is really powerful. Uh, you were present in a class that um, I talked about this notion of red shoe moments. And there is a CEO of a, of a large uh, IT company, uh, and his name is Lonnie Main. And when Lonnie was young, his dad was, uh, was a professional wrestler in, um, in the wrestling world, that, uh, uh, kind of like Monday Night Raw type things. And his name was Moondog Maine. And when Lonnie was, you know, eight, nine years old, he would very often travel with his dad. And his dad was often the main event of the of the night in the arena. And he would be with his dad in um, he would be with his dad in the, the locker room. And his dad would just he was the center of his dad's universe, even though his dad was about to go on stage. And his dad kind of looked like Santa Claus a little bit, you know, white hair, white beard, big guy. And he wore red and white as his outfits. And he had red wrestling shoes he would wear. And he said, you know, the whole world knew my dad as this guy that would get in the wrestling ring and throwing people around, throwing chairs throughout the arena as this big burly guy. He said, but I knew him as this gentle, kind person. And he said, inevitably, there would be a knock on the door and they would say, Mr. Maine, they're ready for you. And he would hold my hand and we'd walk down the aisle. We'd get to another door and they would knock on the door, which let the guard on the other side know we're ready. And the doors would open, the crowd would go wild, and he would step forward and he would hold me back. And so I would stay and wait in the locker room for him. And inevitably, he would allow older people and really young kids to come back to the locker room after the match. And he said, I would watch him. And whenever he was talking with someone, they were the center of his world. He made them feel like they were the most important person in their life for that moment in time. And he said, I just, that's who I knew my dad was. And he would always look for the good in people and look for opportunities to do good for other people. He said, then not too long after that, my dad died. He said, so I grew up with this image of this man in red shoes, just making other people feel good about themselves and seeing the good in others and, and opportunities to do good. 
He said, so as we built our company, you know, we created these things called red shoe stories or red shoe moments, opportunities where we looked to have a positive impact in the lives of others and look for the good in people and situations. And so that's their culture is these red shoe moments. And, you know, he gave this talk that I, that I saw and, you know, my wife and I immediately went out and, and ordered red shoes, red sneakers, and I wear them often because it gives me the opportunity to share that story. But it also reminds me when I put them on is, hey, look for the good in other people because it's there. You know, Abraham Lincoln had a quote that said, if you, look for, if you look for the good in others, you will find it. But if you look for the bad in others in situations, you'll surely find it because they're both there. Depends on what you look for. Brian, there's so much to to talk more to talk about, and there's there's so little time, so yeah. we'll probably have to to do another podcast in the future. But as we wrap on uh, this this episode, what do you think um, the leaders that are listening to this podcast should be rethinking about? Oh gosh, you know, I I think that um, you lead you lead human beings. And human beings have lives. And sometimes those lives are going really well, and other times they're dealing with challenges. Recognize the humanity in the people that you lead. There are times when we have to, uh, we have to make moves with people. If we've gone through the process of working with them and developing them and, and, and counseling them and coaching them, and they're just not right for the position, sometimes we need to free them to go join our competition. And that's just part of part of leading organizations. But if we lean in with curiosity and lean in with compassion first, um, and we make people feel like they are genuinely cared about and valued as part of our team, you will see people accomplish things that you just wouldn't imagine. Um, creating culture starts from genuinely caring about the people that are on your team. And that needs to be genuine. I love that quote. So, so condensed and so impactful. Brian, thank you for sharing your, your wisdom and your stories mm. and very few of your stories. And again, I hope uh, we can get to more of them in the future. That would be um, great. And uh, inspiring us with your humble and servant leadership. Um, and for everyone else listening, uh, thank you for staying until the end. Uh, do hit the subscribe button so you don't miss the next few episodes. And if you have thoughts or your guests you want to propose or anything else, let me know by emailing rethink at rethinkculture.co. And as I like to say, keep leading. Keep leading.